Hello, and welcome to episode 224 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, here as always with... Jason Urbanowitz. Hello, Ian. How's your July going? Hello, Jason. My July is going well. It's been a, you know, knock on wood and, and, and whatnot, a relatively quiet week, I think. Yeah. We've got a, a good show, but nothing, you know, nothing huge to talk about. Later in the show, we're going to have Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren on. I think we owe him a second sandwich with this appearance on the no, podcast. He never did get that first sandwich. That's on you, my yeah, friend. I got to take him to Blimpies one day. Exactly. But he'll be on the show in a little bit. And we talk this week about safety cards. As longtime listeners of the podcast will know, Jeremy is a avid safety card collector and, and collector of all sorts of airline memorabilia. And in this particular instance, he got a behind-the-scenes look at the folks who design and print those safety cards. So he didn't even have to go flying to check this out. So he's going to talk to us about what he discovered that he didn't already know about the much-loved safety card. But we begin with probably a guy who didn't read the safety card, or as some reports indicate, probably couldn't read the safety card. And I'm referring to a unruly passenger. I love the phrase unruly passenger. It just captures so much. It's one way to put it, sure. Who who ended the, the, the play way of putting that jerk over there? This particular unruly passenger was on a United flight, United flight 20 from Houston to Amsterdam. And that flight was diverted to Chicago over the weekend because of that particular passenger needing to be removed from the aircraft. The flight ended up circling over Lake Michigan for a little while to dump fuel and then landed in Chicago where the aircraft was met by Chicago police who escorted that passenger off the aircraft and um, who knows where else after that. And about two hours later, the aircraft was on its way again. And this was a big one as far as people having opinions on social media is concerned because a majority, I would say a majority of the responses after we posted the tweet breaking the news was that, why can't you just dump the passenger? That's a good question. Sure. Sure. <laughs> Sentiment agreed. But certainly, it's not possible to to dump a passenger over. You know, I mean, we discussed recently, you can't, can't open the door. It's physically impossible to dump that passenger as much as you might want to in the moment. You just can't do it. Well, I guess you can dip down to 10,000 feet, pop the door, throw them out, close the door, go back up to altitude. (laughs) Probably some liability issues with that. Yeah, there's some issues there. But I thought there were a couple interesting responses. The funniest was, why not just dump the passenger? Okay. You know, the physical response to that, but I I get the, the emotional response, certainly. But the second thing was, well, why divert the flight? Why not just duct tape him to his chair? You can't do that. You know. You're already on the way. You just duct tape him to the chair and let Amsterdam deal with the problem, which I understand that sentiment as well. You know, it's certainly, you know, you don't want to delay hundreds of passengers, but also you want this person off the aircraft as quickly as possible. You don't want to have to deal with the situation devolving any more than it already has. And certainly you want this person off before someone is injured or seriously injured. So I get that one too. And then the third one was, why are we dumping fuel here? You know, like what's going on here? Why are we even bothering 
to dump fuel? Why not fly further on so you don't have to dump fuel? You can just burn it. And again, it all comes down to the, the captain made decision to divert to Chicago. And if you keep going, where else are you going to dump the passenger anyway? Like northern right, rural right. Canada? Like the, there is no real option once you get beyond Chicago. Like, I don't know, Gandor? Probably not somewhere I mean, you want to go. I guess the reasoning behind the questions were why Chicago? And to answer that question, and well, it's, it's a major United hub, there's definitely a better chance of having a 777 crew, if needed, available. If they even had to swap out the crew, it's easy to do the ground handling. They can get the bags off quickly. They have all the equipment. They can refuel quickly. All the people that are necessary to get this aircraft back in the air quickly are there. But it's one of those things where it's a confluence of events and you're going, well, this this one person screwed screwed up so many people's nights. While United was still recovering from its lengthy operational meltdown, so I'm sure that aircraft being delayed was unwelcomed over at United's operational center because that flight actually got out of Houston on time that day, which was probably a nice yeah. little win. I think the best take on this whole situation – that I think I saw on Twitter, I don't remember who said it, was that whatever happened here, the catering on board United is simply not worth getting in this much trouble about getting this upset. <laughs> the food on United is not good enough to be that upset about. Maybe if you're on Singapore or Cathay or Japan Airlines, but United, Polaris food, just it's not, wasn't worth whatever this passenger will go through. I, I don't know if they got arrested or if charges were being filed. But in the past, during COVID, we did see when dum-dums out there refused to wear a mask and they had to divert a flight or whatever, some airlines were able to recoup the costs of those diversions from yeah. those unruly passengers. That didn't happen a lot. It happened in a very limited number of cases. But when you divert an aircraft, you could be looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars of costs incurred between an overweight landing of the aircraft or dumping the very expensive fuel or rebooking passengers or hotels or finding a new crew. This stuff gets expensive. And if I were United, I'd go after this passenger for every single penny of the expenses incurred. But I think that should be the case for pretty much any unruly passenger event, so long as it's deemed that they were actually unruly, I guess. I think if there are charges laid, that you should be able to go after these folks for the costs involved as well. And that was another big question. Who pays for all this? And the answer is the airline pays for all of this, at least at first. And then it's really up to the airline to see how they can get their money back. The one question I don't have the answer to, and maybe somebody listening does, is are airlines insured for these specific events? Does this fall under business interruption insurance? Is this a reinsurance issue? I, I do not know and want to look more into that. But if somebody listening does know before I have the chance to, to do some research, email us at podcast at fr24.com and let us know what we're missing here and be interesting to learn more about that. I wonder, I mean, if they are insured, I wonder if the insurance company then goes after the disruptive passenger. Oh, that would if be the insurance company has to pay, I can guarantee you they will be going oh. after literally anybody possible to recoup that cost. That would be the worst. Okay. Well, the aircraft left after a few hours, made it to Amsterdam. It departed Amsterdam with a few hours delayed. And then it didn't fly for a couple of days and now it's still late. Had to get over, you know, the incident. <laughs> 
I guess. I yeah. guess. Well, Jason, we talked about this story a few episodes ago. I think you looked up the exact episode number, episode 211, I believe. But this is episode 224, so we're going to talk about it again because why not? It's official. Icelandair has placed a firm order for 13 A3 Airbus A321XLR aircraft. And they will also lease an additional four from, I don't think they've specified the lesser, but they will lease an additional four. And that 13 plus four takes the number up to 17, which is the same number as what, Jason? Probably the exact number of 757s they have operating their fleet today, if I had to guess. The 757-200s to be specific, and that is exactly right. Oh, well, the 300 is a, a special unicorn with no replacement. So yeah, that checks out. That's true. So interestingly enough, in the same configuration, the same two-class configuration that Icelandair runs now, they'll be able to fit more seats into the A321XLR than they do the 757-200. Um, so they've ordered the plane that's available to them, and they're making out not so poorly. Yeah. They still have, since the last time they announced this, they still have 12 options available to them to, them to exercise through probably the 2030s, realistically. These are not coming anytime soon, but they still don't have a replacement for these 767s that they operate, which are not a huge number, but they do have a few. I assume they'll still be operating for, for quite a while because there is no replacement plan for those. I hope at least. I, no. I don't want those to retire. I like those. So their 767s, they've got three passenger and two freighters. So the, the two freighters are obviously 767 converted freighters. They're operating in the registrations of T-Fish or T-F-I-S-H, but it's we like the joke. But then they have three passenger freighters. Those are 22, 23, and 25 years – or passenger 767s, not passenger freighters. Passenger 767s, I mean, 22, yeah, 23, and 25. Evolved, right? yeah. Passenger right. freighter. Yeah, yeah they, I suppose they are. And those could stick around for a little bit. But like Jason said, the, eventually they're going to have to be replaced. And what they replace them with is – I don't know. But I don't run the airline, so I don't have to know. Yep, not our problem. <laughs> Not our problem. When they do replace them, I will like to fly in whatever replacement exists. So good for Iceland. And we'll talk a little bit more about how long it's going to take to get the A321XLRs a little bit later in the show. So we're filing this under Boeing just can't catch a break. So Boeing builds, or not Boeing, but Spirit Aerosystems builds the Boeing 737 fuselages in Wichita. And then they're put on trains on specialized train cars, and then they are carried on that train from Wichita to Seattle, where the aircrafts are assembled, and then you know they fly away to wherever, wherever they're going from that. But in June, a bridge collapsed in Montana, and apparently it's the only bridge that this particular train carrying the 737 MAX and 737 and P8 fuselages can take. And so Boeing is having to take the fuselages off the train cars, put them on trucks, drive them around where this bridge is, and then put them back onto a train and send them on their way to Seattle. Oof, I think it's like, like eight miles, which could be a lot worse. I'm sure there are stretches in, in the rural west where you could go a long, long way to have to divert something around like that since the road network gets a little sparse. But man, Boeing just can't catch a break with any any aspect of the 
assembly of, of the 737s or, or 787s. But yeah, I think the only industry worse than Boeing and assembling these aircraft right now is the U.S. freight rail industry too, because it just seems like catastrophe after catastrophe for all of those companies, BNSF, Norfolk Southern, all, all of them is just nasty thing after nasty thing. And, and of course, Boeing would get tied up in that somehow in the end, just a matter of when and how. Yeah, it just poor Boeing. <laughs> just like with the supply chain still recovering and still strained, just one thing after another. And, and it's just, they just can't catch a break. At least they have a fix because I, I don't imagine that bridge will be rebuilt all that quickly. It's in a very rural area. Obviously, it's in, in, in Montana and in, in rural Montana. So hopefully they can build that back pretty quickly. But that, that stuff takes a while. But I don't know. Boeing <laughs> just can't catch a break. It's, I, I hate to laugh at it, but kind of have to. I don't know enough about Montanan rail infrastructure or the peculiarities of which trains can operate on which tracks because I know that that's a thing in and of itself. But it seems crazy to me that there's not another route available for the, I mean, and I know that the 737 fuse, like we're, I'm answering my own question out loud here, but I know the 737 fuselages are specialized and they need specific tolerances for, for bridges and tunnels and things like that. But this isn't something that anyone ever considered before? I mean, whatever the cost of fixing this situation from happening in the first place, I'm sure, probably outweighs the cost of moving the fuselages on the road for eight miles. I don't know. Yeah, bound to happen at some point. I guess that there'd be some issue. But this is not the first time that we've seen an issue with the fuselages on freight rail. I mean, a number of years ago, probably nearing a decade at this point, the train derailed and a bunch of greenies yeah. found their way into a river. And yes, I, I know true. those were recovered. I don't think they were used, but issues with the delivery of these fuselages on the trains has happened before. It'll happen again, but not quite to the degree of they are uh, having to take them, load them off the train, load them on a truck, truck them down a highway, and then load them back on the train. As long as it works, I guess you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. Boeing, for its part, says that they're sticking by their 2023 delivery goal. They're going to try and deliver between 400 and 450 737s in 2023. So we'll see whether or not this does impact it. But it seems like they've got a, a fix in place for getting the fuselages where they need to be when they need to be there. So good for them on that part, but just poor Boeing. The Telegraph had an interesting article that both Jason and I said, hmm, how about that? The Telegraph is reporting that the Virgin Group, which this particular bit of the Virgin Group would be Virgin Galactic, had signed a partnership with Boom in 2016 and it expired. So this would have been expiring in, in 2020, but it seems like it's just being reported out now. They had an option to buy uh, some Boom aircraft and they just let it expire. Boom, for its part, says they never had a firm commitment, and they're continuing to to talk to Virgin about, hey, you guys want to buy our supersonic aircraft. I mean, I would highly doubt that any airline has firm plans in place with Boom. I don't think anything we've seen so far is firm. No airline has said, we will take delivery of these. Here's the money up front. We're, we're taking delivery of them. Every order we've seen has all sorts of stipulations about safety and fuel burn and requirements and, and sustainable aviation fuel. So I don't think any of this stuff is firm, but 
not terribly surprising that we're starting to see attrition from some of these orders. I honestly had forgotten the Virgin Group even had these on lease uh, or on order at any point anyway. But we'll see if they're the first of a line of airlines to simply let their orders lapse or cancel them or, or just a, an outlier. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, we don't know if there are other orders that have kind of expiration periods in them, but it'll be interesting to see if any of those do lapse and if so, why? And what excuse is given for for not continuing or not re-upping or, or not putting down a second installment or, or whatever. But yeah, it, it, interesting that it's being reported now. I'd love to to hear the backstory there where th- this came from, but not terribly surprising. Yeah. And Virgin was one of, if not the earliest orders for the Boom Overture way back in 2016. I think they had orders for or actually 10 of the aircraft. So not not terribly surprising. That's 2016 is a long time ago. And most of the orders from American and United, they are much more recent. They're within the last year two years. So I wouldn't expect anything to change with those. But yeah, Virgin was a a very early entrant and supporter of Boom. And I guess they just gave up. We'll have to see. Let's talk about some NTSB reports, shall we? Oh, those are always fun. They are always fun. So the NTSB released a preliminary report regarding the Delta 717 nose gear up landing at Charlotte a few weeks ago. In this particular case, The NTSB is pointing to the fractured upper lock link. Oh, man. I hate when my upper link lock fractures. That's awful. Yeah. There's a fractured upper lock link and a displaced lower lock link contacting the nose gear assembly. So basically, a piece of metal broke and the gear couldn't come down. Oh, that's much easier to understand. Thank you. Yes. I'd like to break things down as, as... simply as possible. The NTSB is saying that they've taken the fractured link to their materials laboratory and they're reviewing the CVR and FDR as well as maintenance records to find out why possibly this lock link broke. And I'm sure we will see a final report and any safety recommendations come out in the relatively near future. And then there's this investigative final report that took quite some time. This is the final report issued today, the 12th of July, 2023, for the LAX gear up landing of a FedEx 767 on August 19th, 2020. Ooh, wow. That's almost three years. Yes. And do you want to know what the probable cause is? I have no idea. This was so long ago. I don't remember anything about it. So this was a FedEx 767 where they got a gear disagree light when they went to land at LAX, they did a couple of low passes and it was confirmed that the left main landing gear was not lowered. They did a belly-ish landing and the aircraft landed safely. Everyone was fine. They repaired the aircraft and moved on from there. But the NTSB says this, this is, you know, after three years, this is what we get. Quote, the left main landing gear's failure to extend due to the separation of the brake rod retaining hardware from the aft inboard wheel for reasons that could not be determined based on the available evidence. Huh. That's not often we get the NTSB or or really any investigation agency just going, I don't know, 
The number six brake rod attaching hardware components from the accident airplane were not located after the accident, precluding a determination of why the pin was in place for takeoff, but not when the crew tried to lower the landing gear. So possibly the the part that broke uh, departed the aircraft and is somewhere in the, the greater LA basin. Without that, we'll never know what happened. Exactly. Exactly. So they know what happened, but they don't know why, because the why is somewhere on somebody's LAX. Exactly. You know, it's always an interesting thing where the NTSB goes, we know what happened, but we don't know why because reasons. Well, it took them three years, I guess. Did they have an investigator just out in in LA, like furiously searching for three years for it and just finally said, you know what? I'm, I'm done. I'm coming home. Exactly. He just got back. Good for him. He just got back. Uh, We have more Indian aviation news. And Jason, would you like to be the new owner of Go First? No. No. Thank you for offering. No, I would not like to be. Go First, the Indian airline that is currently grounded for financial reasons, has launched a call for expressions of interest in the airline. Several newspapers have carried this call for EOIs, and there is a 9th of August deadline for whoever wants to take them over to say, hey, we want the airline. Gopher stopped operating at the beginning of May and has said, oh, we're going to be back in a week. We'll be back in two weeks. We'll be back in a week. We'll be back in three weeks. And it just hasn't happened. As expected, it just rarely ever happens. So they're looking for buyers. In the interim, an Indian court this week granted lessors of the Gophers fleet access to the aircraft, not to repossess them, but to make sure, reading between the lines, they granted access to the lessors so that they could ensure that they could be repossessed in the near future. Well, that's important. We've talked about in the past, you can't just leave an airplane on the ground unattended for weeks or months at a time. There are things you need to do to keep it active and ready to go if and when it is repossessed. You don't want to have to do maintenance on the aircraft before you repossess it. You want it to be ready to go. Certainly not. Exactly. And so they've been granted access to the aircraft to ensure that they are in proper working order, that all of the paperwork is there, and that the maintenance has been performed. It sounds like the court is moving towards some sort of resolution here, but that's just me reading between the lines. I could be reading them wrongly. But keep an eye on this because it's they're not a small airline. And what happens to go first in such a market as India, where there is a huge demand for low-cost air travel? It'd be very interesting to see what fills that vacuum. Yeah, something will. Something will. We go north now because Norwegian has bought Vidro or is buying Vidro. The Norwegian air – well, they're both Norwegian airlines, so that doesn't – the red Norwegian airline is buying the, one the green Norwegian airline. The one with the big planes is buying the one with the smaller planes. And it's a really interesting thing to see happen because Norwegian came out and it wasn't one of those things where, you know, there was a lot of talk about, you know, passenger synergies and brand loving and culture. And they go, no, we're buying them because they make steady money and we need that. That's true. And remember, not too long ago, Norwegian itself was facing the brink of non-existence. They've completely dissolved and given up the long haul game. All those 7.8s, actually, some of them are being scrapped and parted out right now. But Norwegian no longer operates long haul at all. And they've always had a problem of what do we do in the winter with our fleet? How do we make money 
in the winter. And apparently, Weed Row is a part of that equation to just keep money coming in to survive the long, cold, harsh Norwegian winters. Yes, with government cash. Yeah, I mean, there is that. I mean, I don't think that that's, you know... Look, I, I like the honesty from them. We're, we're not no buying them yeah. for synergies. We're not buying them because we like their brand. We're buying them because we need money. And right. you got to spend money to make money. So Norway has a strong system of what in the US is called essential air service. So basically, government subsidies go towards the cost of the ticket. And therefore, Vidro has a steady source of income throughout the year. In Norway, they are called PAS routes. And it operates, you know, on a very similar thing. There's a we need to have air service between these cities. And, you know, there's really no way else to get there besides these aircraft in these particular months, especially. So they continue to operate and they're subsidized by the government. And Norwegian says, well, look, we can do a lot of things. One, we get the cash that they're making in, and that's all well and good. But also, I mean, they did mention the fact that, you know, they can use Vitero passengers to then fly, you know, on Norwegian not long haul routes, but inter European routes. Yeah, they could also, if Norwegian wants, they could operate their seven threes on these essential routes, which I'm sure would be a huge boost to cargo capacity, which is probably badly needed. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see which, if any, routes the Norwegian aircraft take over. Huh. Jason, I had not thought about that. Well, there you go. That's why we have this conversation. All right. Let's take a quick break from this particular conversation and go talk with Jeremy about safety cards. We'll be back with Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren right after this. Welcome back. We're now joined by Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren, who is a frequent contributor to the podcast, holds, I believe, the most punch cards on his free sandwich card from anyone because he is one of the most interesting av geeks on the planet, in the world. And Jeremy, you are back today because you recently went inside the Interaction Group, which is an interestingly named organization that designs and manufactures the safety cards that you find in the seatback. Welcome back to AvTalk. Thank you for having me, Ian. And yes, I did. And as a safety card enthusiast and collector, I, uh, despite writing an article for Paxos Arrow for uh, other AvGeek, Seth Miller, I felt like a kid in a candy store all day on Christmas Day. <laughs> This is one of those job things that, that isn't really a job. So the interaction group, they don't necessarily just print the cards. They're working on designing the cards and making them, I guess, the most effective safety cards they can be. Tell us a little bit more about you know how that process works. Yes, Ian, thank you. I did have a chance to visit Interaction Research Group. They operate in a small shop just south of Seattle. You wouldn't necessarily guess when you pull up to this kind of retail strip mall thing that one of the largest safety card producers in the world is is based next to a taekwondo shop, I think, or martial arts shop and a restaurant. I don't remember which one. But lo and behold, there they are. They track back. We had a great chat with Trisha Ferguson, their current CEO, and they track all the way back to the 1960s when a Dr. Daniel Johnson and Bo Altman, uh, both with Douglas Aircraft at the time, teamed up to study crash survivability. And they came to a realization that crashes were often considerably more survivable than previously believed. 
So IRC began doing a lot of stuff was anecdotal prior to that. So safety cards existed. They, they tracked well back to the 30s, but they didn't necessarily. You could kind of put whatever you wanted on it. So a lot of it was based on anecdotal. This happened, ergo now this is on the card. And a lot of cards were limited to just over water flights. So you'd see them on an international Paris to Boston, but you might not see it from Boston to Philadelphia. And so IRC, or rather they weren't IRC at the time, but Douglas had done a lot of studies to put together basics for understanding aircraft crashes and post-crash survivability. And then IRC picked up that mantle in the early 70s when the Altman-Johnson duo split and then went into doing a lot of their own studies to supplement the Douglas ones and then advocated for the inclusion of certain information on the safety card that they had done the studies to prove would have an effect, a positive effect. So IRC then became the consulting arm that would kind of come alongside a lot of airlines and regulatory bodies to help them understand what should go on the card or in increasingly what had to be on the card. So IRC spends a lot of time understanding and they have a lot of institutional knowledge understanding what has to be on the card because that's the single biggest thing that guides what ends up on them and then in addition when Ms. Ferguson took over in I want to say early 2000s as the CEO she bought a print shop and so now they also it's a full service thing you can in fact you can go on their website and order up a card for just about anything their print runs I think run as small as five to ten if you want to really bling out your Piper Comanche with a card of its own. I guess you could do that. And they will help you from the process, starting with what needs to go on the card and broadly speaking, what you'd like it would look, what you want it to look like and what it has to look like all the way to printing it out and shipping it directly to your house or hangar. What are the most important things to go on the card? I mean, every card I've ever seen has something about seatbelts. It's got something about the exits and it usually, you know, gives the overwater thing. But what what else is important to, to include on a safety card? Right. Well, this is about 48 pages worth of stuff, 45 pages worth of stuff that the FAA requires to be on a safety card. And largely, you, we have IRC's work to thank for that. But there's a number of things that are required to be on there, basically everything. Despite it not being particularly great design, and we can talk about that in a minute, every U.S. safety card has that giant block of exit seating text on every card. It's often why U.S. cards are bifold and other countries are not, like Canada, for example. And that has to be on there pretty much verbatim, often in multiple languages, made in the country of final... In like a trivial one, comparatively, the country of final assembly has to be on there. Basically, everything you see on there has to be on there and tracks back to a study of some sort. So a lot, a lot, a lot has to be on there. So, I mean, it seems to me that there's a lot of cramming of information onto these. Have they done studies? They've done studies that say, you know, these things have happened. And so we should include these on the safety card. Have they gone back and done studies of now that we've put all this stuff on the safety card, can people actually read it? And do people actually read it? Those are two different questions. And historically, that's what the safety card has struggled with the most, you know, as you know, and pretty much anyone who listens to this podcast has probably flown before. 
the safety card occupies space usually in the seat back pocket. One of the things that's required of it is it has to be visible and accessible. So that's largely why they live where they do or in business class seats. They'll often be at the front of a storage cubby or something like that. And you have to be able to, again, to reach it, see it and reach it at any time. And they use a lot of tricks to try to get you to notice it that are based in psychological principles and study work like color and the amount of text on it. You're considerably more likely to pick it up the less text there is on the card. Text generally converts in our brains to work so in difficulty. So if it's relatively simple, it makes you more likely want to pick it up. The color is more likely to grab you, though often that's something that's you know dictated by branding guidelines and such. And then when you do pick it up, it tends to have a fairly specific flow to it so that, for example, things are all kind of clustered together. All of your overwater material might not be on one part of the card and another part of the card. It's kind of together. They can use color to call your attention to certain things like red or green that tend to have specific, you know, you associate red and green with things to, to pay more attention to for the most part. So a lot of it are tricks of the psychological trade to get you to want to pick it up and want to engage with it. Then the safety card has to be understandable, and that's another level altogether. I can tell you that they had told me that they do studies of every single card goes out with a research group that takes it into the wild, into focus groups in the U.S. and the country of origin. So, for example, Lufthansa a card destined for Lufthansa would also be tested with a focus group in Germany. And if they don't hit 90% comprehension or higher, they go back to the drawing block, drawing board rather, and try to work the flow, work the color, work the illustration to get it to a point of 90% comprehension or higher with the focus groups. Okay, that's the can people read it? Do people read it? That is a squishy question. If you really want to dive deep on this, I can't recommend the podcast on safety cards 99% that 99% Invisible did several years back now that actually had one of the two founders, I think it was Altman, talking about the specific thing. And they estimate something like 4 or 5% of people actually do pick them up. And that is not a particularly high number, obviously. I... Didn't necessarily get to ask Trish this question directly, but I do think that it's interesting that it's something that, yeah, is squishy. But I think there's a, a couple of examples that you, you could point to and say that people have cited them in a number of post-crash, post-incident you know, reports that mentioned that they saw the card and reference the card. And that was part of how they formulated getting off of the aircraft when they had the chance to. So it's kind of one of those 4% might pick them up, but are those 4% picking them up in the matter? And if you're coming in on a final approach and your engine's on fire and they're getting, you know, the flight attendants are yelling brace, brace, brace through the cabin, suddenly that card becomes way more important and it's kind of right there when you need to pick it up. So it, it's kind of interesting that we put so much work and intention behind something that has such a seemingly low engagement rate, but also airlines are so safety and travel is so safety that the likelihood that you'll ever need to use it is very low. So I guess the question becomes like, 
does it matter if 4% read it as long as you have it there when you need it? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a fair point to make. What about the airlines that don't have safety cards necessarily, but have safety placards? I'm, of course, thinking about Ryanair, which has the seat back placard. It's basically just glued to the seat back. Has there been any studies about the effectiveness or the uptake rate for those based on their kind of constant visibility versus a card? That's a good question. I'd be curious what they would have to say about that. That didn't occur to me, but that's a good point. In theory, you'd be forced to look at it more simply because, especially on Ryanair, what else are you going to do? But I don't know. That's a really good question. Well, we'll have to save that one for future study. We've been talking with Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren, who went deep into the world of deeper, I should say, into the world of safety cards as a collector. Jeremy, how many safety cards do you currently have in your collection? Just ballpark it for us. After checking my spreadsheet, Ian, I am up to 794. You absolutely have to keep that organized. Well, here's to your ever-growing collection, and thanks for taking us down the safety card rabbit hole today. It was always good talking with you. Likewise, Ian. Thanks, sir. Welcome back. Jason, I hope you have your safety card still in your seatback pocket and ready to go. Do you read the safety card when you fly? Uh, sometimes, depending if I'm on a new aircraft or a new class of service that I haven't been before. Recently, actually, on uh, the Air France 777-300ER I flew, I noticed that there was a separate addendum to the safety card talking about the sweet door on the new seats they installed, which was interesting. So you had to read the complete prior to that seat safety card, and then you had to look at a different safety card about the door in particular. Which Specifically for the door. Huh. Yeah. yeah, I guess it saves them from printing up entirely new safety cards. So that was interesting. Yeah, that's true. So yeah, I suppose they can use it for the doored and doorless seats. Uh, and then just Synergy. One in. Yeah. Synergy. <laughs> I'm going to start charging you money every time you say synergy. Uh Yeah. Let's talk about Gatwick. Never been. What's going on there? All right. Well, so as you, I believe, are aware, and as many listeners may be aware, Gatwick is a very, 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 very busy single runway airport. Is it the busiest single runway airport? I don't believe so, but it is got to be up there. It's definitely up there. I think it goes back and forth, but I believe it may be, if not the busiest, then certainly in the top few. But by 2030, that may no longer be the case because oh. Gatwick actually has two runways. Do they, they just can't use like both of the them at one? the same time. Oh, they can't why? use both of them at the same time because they're too close together. Oh, but now have you there's ever a been plan. to Newark? Come on. Two runways are basically one wide runway. So the runways themselves are only a few hundred meters apart, and that's too close for safe operation of both of them. But the plan now, and they they don't have to do, I mean, it sounds simple, but it's apparently going to take five years and $2 billion to move the center line of the northern runway, which is the, the auxiliary runway that's used generally as a taxiway, 25 feet. 25 feet. 25 feet. They're going to move the center line 25 feet. So they need to basically add 25 feet of runway on the north side of the northern runway so that they can use that runway as a departure runway. And then the other runway will be used for arrivals and departures as well. 
So the plan has been submitted. They've been talking about this since 2018. The plan has now officially been submitted in 2023. It will take apparently take two years to have this plan approved and construction begins in 2025. And it will take apparently five years for this to happen. I mean, and looking so at that they can have two that way on Google Maps, I guess if they were to move the center line of the North Runway 25 feet to the north, you also then have to move all of the taxiways that are to the north of that runway also up a bit. And it, there looks to be room to do that. We should definitely take a look at the plans here. And I guess I could understand why it would take so long to do that. But how many billion did you say this would take to do? Two. I don't two understand. Billion. It's just like asphalt and electrical systems for lights and stuff how does that are they physically relocating oh, the entire I'm sorry. airport i'm sorry 2.2 billion pounds so oh, roughly ooh, two like, and three quarter billion dollars yeah i don't understand that not one bit wow okay expect your tickets at a getwick to go up ever so slightly to pay for that yeah, that'll be interesting to see if it gets approved because they've been talking about it. Oh, I can, can find an article from 2018 that says this is what we're going to do. So that Whatever money they're saving it. by not building a third runway at Heathrow, they can just spend down there at Gatwick because that is just never going to happen. I wonder how much money was spent or has been spent or is being spent on the proposals and studies and legal wrangling over the third runway. We should be consultants. We wouldn't need to do podcast anymore. Yeah, if we were just consultants. We wouldn't need to do anything anymore. No, no, we'd be set. Someone's making money. It's not us. And it ain't us. (laughs) Uh, So speaking of government, I was going to say shenanigans, but that doesn't seem right in this particular context. Intransigence maybe? Yeah. yeah. Flip-flopping. How about flip-flopping? We've talked about... The government mandated cuts to flights at Schiphol in Amsterdam, back and forth lawsuits, Schiphol won, Schiphol lost, Schiphol won, and then they finally lost again with the courts saying, yes, these flight cuts can go into effect as early as next year, down from 500,000 flights per year down to 460,000 flights per year, and they were all set to go, and then the Dutch government collapsed last week. Oh, that seems like a problem. So, so now, now there is back. no clarity. Yeah, no clarity. And I, I still wouldn't recommend going out of my way to or out of your way to booking any flights through Amsterdam because now we still have no idea. I feel so bad for the route planners and schedules at KLM and Air France trying to figure out how do we schedule an airline hubbed in Amsterdam where we don't even know how many flights will be allowed to operate in Amsterdam on top of all the other shenanigans going on in the European aviation space. I feel bad for them. This sucks. Yeah. It's not just KLM and the folks at Air France as well. It's some of the smaller airlines, according to one study at least, would be more impacted than even KLM, such as EasyJet, where you would have a higher percentage of flights impacted or a higher percentage of the existing flights would go away, which is you know not great if you're trying to plan around things. And then all of a sudden, you're like, okay, well, we at least know what the bad news is. And now you don't even know what the bad news is yet. Because you don't have a government to set the limits. Yeah. Or this also is painful for new entrants like JetBlue and their precious like one or two slots. Those might be on the chopping block as well. We don't know. They don't know. Nobody knows. And that's why it's so annoying. Yeah. But we'll keep after this. And I didn't have following Dutch politics on my list of things that I would need to do this year. 
But oh, you got to have that on. You can't ever leave that I'm off. following Dutch politics. Yeah. yeah. And it's not even a World Cup year. No, it's usually just about bicycles. But this there year, all about airplanes. All right. More airplanes is what we're going to have because Airbus has officially inaugurated its new final assembly line for the A320neo family in Toulouse. This uh, is space this is bittersweet, was, bittersweet moment here. This, yeah, this was space that was formerly occupied by the A380 final assembly line. And so now, now it will be occupied by the A320 family and especially the A321neo because as of last month with all of those orders coming in at the Paris Air Show, Airbus has officially made the A321neo the most ordered Airbus aircraft ever, surpassing the original A320neo. The A321neo currently accounts for 60% of the A320neo family backlog. Wow. That's a lot of planes. That's a lot. Not terribly surprising given the airplane doesn't have a true competitor in the market. So yeah, they're kind of running away with it. But yeah, how many aircraft did we say this brings them up to in the near future for the entire A320 family? I think it was 75 per month. They're on their way to 75 by 2026. That is across all of the crazy number of aircraft. All the final assembly lines. Hope they can actually achieve given all the. They don't put any of their fuselages on trains, do they? Barges, I believe. Oh, barges. Okay. I mean, those. those At least the the A3. Yeah. So if I remember correctly, the A321 fuselages that are assembled in Mobile are. Yes, they are are ferried over across a barge. Yep. All yeah. the way across the Atlantic, and somehow still makes sense to do that. There you go. Get him there somehow, I guess. Yep. Here's a story that I didn't expect to include this week because I didn't think it was possible. But Jason, tell me what happened in Lagos. In Lagos, Nigeria, somewhere apparently that has been struggling with security issues at the airport for decades, turns out an entire runway lighting system was stolen. The whole thing, gone. This comes to us from the BBC when the details are kind of sketch, but I'll quote them saying, thieves have stolen the lighting system for one of the runways at Nigeria's busiest airport just months after it was installed. An airport authority spokesman has confirmed to the BBC. Investigations going on. It's not clear when the system was taken. Local media reported that they airport workers- They didn't notice it was missing right away? They, they didn't know it was missing right away. It was. It's gone. The runway was closed <laughs> for a while. They said the ground lights were installed in November, ending years of after-dusk restrictions on landing on that wing of the airport. Apparently, the BBC goes on to say that domestic airlines were forced to land on another runway that was two and a half miles, four kilometers on the other side of the airport, and they had to taxi all the way back to the domestic terminal. And that's an operational headache. Yeah, but apparently the airport had been closed for a few months for maintenance, and they took the lighting system. Impressive, because the lighting system for a runway is kind of large and kind of a lot. But when I dug into this story a little bit and looked at the notums issued, it seems like it's actually the poppy system, not the approach lights or not somehow the lights embedded in the runway itself. But if the notum for the poppy system is to be believed, that is probably the part that was taken. And that is the system of, I guess it's four lights or four LED assemblies off to the side of the runway that gives pilots a visual indication of the glide slope. So white over red or red over white, depending on if you're above the glide slope or or 
under the glide slope. I would assume that's what was taken, which isn't a huge assembly, I guess, that I could see someone trying to strip that apart for the copper or whatever's inside. But I just can't believe it It went missing and no one noticed for a while. But if the runway is not in service, I I guess I understand it. Okay, I I guess a little more. I guess guess maybe when the runway opened, they they tried to turn it on and nothing happened. They said, huh, where'd it go? We should go check that out. Yeah. and the I, wonder, I wonder where those lights went. Yeah. The nodem's in effect oh, for a few man. months, so I guess they don't expect it to be coming. Uh, they have to order a new poppy assembly from somebody yeah. somewhere and install that. I don't know. But if you find one on eBay anytime soon, you'll probably know where it came from. Yeah. Oh, boy. Okay. Let's go in a completely different direction and talk about buses. Oh, I like buses. I like buses too. But in this particular case, these buses take you to airplanes. Yeah, which is better. to say that, yeah, we're talking about Landline, the bus company that is operating what were formerly regional flights or what would normally be regional flights for some airlines like American Airlines. And those bus services are now finally behind security, making yeah. them actually useful. Yeah, some of them are behind security, at least. Only for American, not for United or Sun Country. They operate for three airlines here in the US. But American had launched this service with Landline out of its Philly in, I think, the spring of 2022. And it had touted when the service launched that these will be behind security. So let's say, for example, at Atlantic City in New Jersey, you go to the airport in Atlantic City, you clear security there, you check your bags, just like you would for a normal airport. But when you get to the gate, there's a bus there. There's not a plane. There's a bus, and you get on the bus, they seal it up, they drive you down the Atlantic City Expressway to Philly, and then you park at a normal gate, and then you just get off, you enter into the terminal, and you go on to your connecting gate. This is not intended to be something you take just from Philly to Atlantic City. That would be silly, but you can do that for $800 or something. The last time I looked it up, you shouldn't do that, but very nice to see this improvement that was promised from the beginning that American had always had. On its website, actually. They never updated the page to reflect reality, but the webpage is so out of date now that it's back in into reality. <laughs> it's back up to date. Yeah, back so up to date. They talk about having the seal on the bus to make sure that no one got off or, or got on. Do we know what that is? Like, is it just a piece of foil tape? Like I don't you know. see on I, I haven't seen it. I don't even know what. But I, I guess like, I just, they're, they're all over the place inside the cabin of an aircraft. If you go in the laboratory, look at like the smoke detector assembly, right. you see a little security seal that if it breaks, they got to find out who broke it or what broke it. I guess it's probably something very similar to that. They probably put it on all the luggage compartments of the, the bus too, because you wouldn't want at a red traffic light, someone opening up the luggage compartment, stashing something illicit in there and then closing it up and having that go airside. So I can see how this would be a logistical headache and why it took Landline, unfortunately, over a year after the launch of service with American to get this into action. But this is good. This should be the future of very short haul flying. There should not be a flight between Atlantic City and Philly. There should not be a flight between Harrisburg and I think Philly and I think there's one Allentown to Newark. Like these should not be flights. It shouldn't exist. So it's good in the light of the pilot shortage and the light of congestion in the air. It just makes sense to do this. And in many ways, it's actually a faster and better 
experience than stashing everyone inside a ERJ-145. Yeah, I agree with Jason. And everyone knows how much I don't like doing that. Excellent. But the man is right. This Friday sees the launch of Northern Pacific Airlines' first flight. Hey, Japan is calling via Anchorage, right? About that. Oh, right. They're doing Ontario, California to Las Vegas. Vegas. Correct. That is correct. Got to do something. uh, You part on Friday and you come back on Sunday. And the goal is to have a charter flight somewhere in there on Saturday. But the first flight is launching this Friday, July 14th, departing in 2 p.m. And it's a quick hop on one of their 757-200s over to Vegas on an hour-long flight eventually. The goal is still to operate from the U.S. West Coast via Anchorage to Asia eventually. Yeah, somehow. But, Not sure how they're, they're going to accomplish that. They're starting operations yeah. and good for them. And, yeah. and I'm going to leave it there for now and, and wish them the best of luck. No, yeah. Good luck to them. The U.S.'s newest large aircraft carrier. This is good news. Competition is good. I just wish it was under better circumstances given the, the uninteresting route. There you go. And finally, this week, I am happy, very, very happy to report that Air Tanzania has gotten its A220 back that was stuck in Maastricht for over a year Ooh. because of a commercial dispute and a judge had placed a hold on that aircraft. This is not the first time one of its aircraft has been taken. It's not even the second leverage, time, right? <laughs> it's poor airline. It's not even the second time. It's it, this is the third time. It's the second A two twenty and third aircraft overall. They had previously in twenty nineteen had a pre delivery dash eight and an A two twenty in. I'm not sure where the A220 was exactly, but also uh, seized for a period of time while they worked out a separate dispute. Um, So good for them getting their A220 back. And it's already back in service. Yeah. They did not waste any time getting that back into service. I guess they were expecting it. Yeah. Yeah. So they got it back on the 7th of July and the first flight for the aircraft with passengers was on the 10th. So excellent. good, Good for them. And I'm glad they got their aircraft back. Maybe one day we'll get some aircraft. Maybe we'll get like a boom, you know, overture thing. We can pick one up on eBay with a pappy and just call it a day. Yeah. You never know what you find. Is that how it works? Mm -hmm. I'll leave that to you. Okay. But until then, this has been episode 224 of AvTalk. Thank you so very much for listening. We appreciate whether or not you're finding the podcast this week for the first time or you've listened to every single episode, we certainly appreciate you listening, especially all the way to the end. If you're so inclined and you've made it this far, why not leave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast? It helps other people find the podcast as well. And the more people listen to the podcast, I think the better, Jason thinks the better, and hopefully you as listeners think the better as well. So we'd be ever so grateful if you did that. For now, I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.